Good evening, everybody. So um, if you haven't been here the uh, past few weeks, we're doing a sermon series <clears throat> in the letter, first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. And uh, Joseph uh, Bianco, uh, one of our pastors, preached on uh, 1 Corinthians 6 uh, last week. <clears throat> and I'm going to be going through 1 Corinthians 7 this week and next week. And then I believe that Joseph will return to 1 Corinthians 6 after that, and uh, we'll specifically uh, return to the uh, parts on sex. Um, so you could say this week and next week and the week after that, uh, the theme is going to be sexuality. Uh, so you all uncomfortable yet? Um, um, <laughs> yes. Um, so why are we uncomfortable? It's interesting to think about. Um, uh, I'm going to give you sort of two different um, things that, reasons why we get uncomfortable, and then I'll read the, the passage that we have. Um, on one side, I would say one of the reasons why we're uncomfortable is because in our society, sex is the most important thing in the world. Uh, <clears throat> and many of us feel that way. I remember actually seeing a magazine when I was in college going to university, and there was a, they had an university magazine at that time, and it simply had the title... Uh, I had a picture of a bed, uh, and it said, the most important thing in the world and other myths about sex. And um, that, at that time, my life just blew me away. I was like, that's exactly how I'm thinking. This is the most important thing in the world. Uh, and if you're on that side of things, then the, um, we get very uncomfortable with the restrictions on sexual behavior that we read in the Bible when it tells us, don't do this uh, and do this instead. Um, on the other hand, uh, some of us are uncomfortable for the opposite reason that we think or we assume that the Bible uh, treats sex as something dirty and unholy and unspeakable. And they're actually made uncomfortable by how cavalier the Bible often is in talking about sex uh, and how actually um, it's uh, <clears throat> sometimes even more explicit than we would be comfortable with in, in a typical conversation. Uh, and so as I read this passage, one of the things I want you to sort of pick up on is how matter-of-fact Paul is. Uh, he is, on the one hand, laying restrictions, uh, telling us certain things are to be done, other things are not to be done. Uh, on the other hand, it's not like the great unmentionable, right? He's kind of treating it as, as part of life. And the larger context of this whole letter that Paul is writing uh, is a theological one <clears throat> where he starts out saying, get your eyes on Jesus, get the big picture. And now in this middle section of the uh, letter, He's getting down to brass tacks of how to work this out in some very detailed and specific cases. Uh, but it's, it, you can't miss the sort of the, the everyday language that he's using here. He's not holding it up as the great, unmentionable, terrible thing. And he's also not idolizing it and saying this is the most important thing in the world either. So let's listen uh, with that in mind. So I'm reading, uh, I'm going to actually read from the beginning of chapter seven, and then I'm gonna to jump to the end of chapter seven, and then next week I'll do the middle part. So this is the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, <clears throat> it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. A husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And then jumping down to the end of the chapter, uh, picking it up in verse 36. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, there's a lot in here. Uh, I'm not going to touch on everything that he talks about there. Uh, we will have a Q&A session afterwards, so if you want to get into some of the really nitty-gritty details of what Paul is talking about, maybe uh, we can address some of that in our um, Q&A session. Uh, but I, in some sense, I'm looking at big picture this week. And uh, again, I just want to, to emphasize how, how matter-of-fact Paul is about this. He's not holding this up as the huge thing uh, that is, you know, all of life is about this. And on the other hand, um, he's just kind of pragmatic, giving uh, some advice for real life uh, situations. Now, just to sort of start at the beginning, uh, he says there, he, in this passage you have here, it's written in quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, in the original Greek, there's no quote marks. So that, those quotes are put in there by the uh, translators uh, really putting in their interpretation that what Paul is doing is quoting something that they have written to him. And that seems supported by the context. There's a number of things as Paul goes through this letter that seem to have been questions that were addressed to him or quotes from their letter, and he's quoting them uh, and responding back. And so I think that that is uh, a correct what the translators have done. Uh, and in that context then, what seems to be uh, going on is that already in Paul's day, uh, talking about like the, uh, the 60s of the first century, uh, most likely, uh, there was already really trending in Roman society, not just in the church, uh, but really in the whole Roman society, 
uh, a movement toward asceticism, uh, anti-body, sort of the whole body is, um, is something to be uh, downplayed. Uh, and uh, there's a phrase that Paul uses in a different letter where he calls it will worship. Uh, the worship of one's will to beat down the body to force it to do all kinds of difficult things. Uh, and that was something that grew in the Roman uh, world, uh, not primarily from the church. If you read some of C.S. Lewis's writing about the Roman Empire, he talks about how this kind of mental image of being all about the mind and the body just being sort of um, beaten down into this sort of um, subjugated thing uh, was really a dominant theme that came not from Christianity but from the uh, outside uh, secular world and eventually uh, came in a form called Gnosticism uh, with a very strong separation of the mind and the body. It's all about the mind and the body is just sort of junk uh, and uh, not to be uh, thought about. Uh, by the third or fourth century, this gets kind of uh, embodied in the church. And so as much as we love St. Augustine of Hippo in this church, and we quote him all the time, he had some really strange things to say about sex. So, you know, like any of these church fathers, we don't take everything they say just for granted. Um, and so by the time, again, the third or fourth century, St. Augustine uh, was saying something that wasn't largely controversial in his day, which is that all sex is sinful. Uh, even within a marriage, uh, and that you should avoid it as much as possible except to have kids. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches, uh, but that is something that was uh, growing even in Paul's day. And so Paul seems to be responding uh, to that teaching. Now, an alternative reading, if you don't put the quote marks in there, you could say that what Paul is doing is he's saying in response to them, in general, yes, it can be good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, but... And that will give you all these qualifications. So uh, in that context, if you say this is not a quote from them, and you say this is something that Paul is teaching, if you read the rest of the context, he's not saying it is good to never uh, have sexual relations. He's saying, well, uh, there's a context in which that is true, but, uh, and he goes on to qualify it uh, in all of these different ways. So again, just by way of the context here, Paul is not teaching what Augustine taught. Uh, and some of you may have grown up in churches that taught that. Um, there are um, multiple churches out there uh, that some explicitly would say that all sexual relationships, even in marriage, are, are sinful and wrong, uh, and at best are kind of, you know, done in a half-hearted way. And that is not at all Paul's teaching, uh, as we'll see. So, as I said, I'm not going to run through every single point that Paul has here. There's a lot of detailed stuff here. I'm going to give you uh, six main points, and each one's going to be pretty quick. Uh, and I feel like it's really well worth laying down uh, just some of these teachings because there is a lot of confusion about this in our society uh, and in the church. So uh, I'll just give you these six points if you uh, want. The outline for the sermon is on page eight at the end of your bulletin. You can take a look there. I'll just expand on them a little bit. Uh, so the first thing is uh, that sex is in general a good thing. Uh, we can go back to the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve, and he tells them to have sex before they ever fell into sin. He says, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. And that involves just what you think it involves. Uh, and so he's commanding them uh, to have sex in the garden before there was ever sin in the world. Uh, it's a good thing. Paul uh, says uh, in verse uh, 6, he says, it is a gift. 
Each has this gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so he's saying people who are married, that's a gift, it's a good thing. All right, so that's all I wanna say about that. Uh, the second is that the right place for sex is in marriage between a man and a woman. And most people will and should get married. Uh, and so when he says in verse two, uh, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, he's not saying this by way of command, uh, but he's saying this is the norm. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, you know, uh, something to be expected uh, and is a good thing. And as he says down below, each has his own gift from God, both the married uh, and the unmarried. So that's just uh, all I want to say about uh, point two. Uh, point three, uh, maybe make you a little more uncomfortable. Uh, he says people who are married should have sex often. Uh, and each has a right to expect this. Uh, and not doing it can give an opening to Satan. Uh, and so far from St. Augustine or some of these other people who are like, you should minimize it, you know, Paul is saying actually in the right context, uh, it should be routine and regular. Uh, and so I would actually say that to, to married couples here, uh, again, many of us suffer from confused teaching, confused past, shame, uh, guilt, um, if this is not part of your life as a married couple, it should be. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that it's okay to talk to our pastors, get counseling uh, as to how to make that a regular part of your married life. Uh, on the other hand, uh, moving to point four, I told you I was gonna have six quick points here. Um, being single and not having sex is not some kind of strange, abnormal situation. Uh, as a matter of fact, Paul says it's actually preferable. And that's the situation that he's in. So Paul was never married, as far as we know, certainly not by the time of this letter. Most of the other apostles were married. Uh, but uh, Paul says, I'm not married, and uh, if you're not married uh, and you're single, uh, you should not be having sex, and that's great, and that's normal, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's not like some kind of terrible, uh, horrible situation. And so in the same breath that he says marriage is a gift, he says singleness is a gift. Uh, this is a, a, a normal place to be. And he even says, um, sort of in the balance, even though both is a gift, uh, I actually think being single is slightly preferable uh, uh, with a bunch of um, uh, conditions attached. Um, and so he's actually holding it up. So far from saying that singleness is some kind of uh, incomplete state or some kind of state where there's something wrong with you, uh, he's saying this is actually something in some ways preferable uh, and you should rejoice in this gift. I'm gonna come back to that uh, in a little bit. Uh, point number five, um, one way to put this is uh, long engagements are generally a bad idea. Um, <laughs> uh, at the same time, you should not rush into marriage uh, or feel pressure to get married. Uh, and so sometimes when people are engaged, um, they uh, feel a pressure to make vows they're not really comfortable with. Uh, and uh, the Bible has many places where it says don't make a vow if you're not ready to make that vow. Uh, until you've made a vow, you are not bound. And so don't make a vow you are not comfortable with. On the other hand, don't stay in this sort of you know, semi-status forever. Make up your mind. Uh, I would sort of you know, put it, uh, putting my words into Paul's uh, words. Um, oftentimes the situation Paul's addressing here in the Roman world, someone might be betrothed by a family arrangement. There might have been 
somebody who was sort of assigned to you from a very early age in childhood as your betrothed, and it might be somebody you don't even particularly know all that well. Uh, and so Paul is saying, you are not duty-bound, you don't have to marry that person uh, in, in, in such a situation. Uh, and finally, again, this is all just sort of like just um, case, specific cases here. Uh, Paul says, uh, if your spouse is not a Christian, that is not by itself sufficient reason to get divorced, uh, that you should stay married even if your, uh, your, your marriage is not uh, the ideal one that you would like, and I'm going to come back to that. Now, in all of this, the, the way that Paul is talking, I would call it proverbial, it's a little bit funny the way he talks. He says, um, you know, the Lord says this, I say this, you know, this is not for me, this is from the Lord, and so on. Um, so he's not saying that he's somehow uh, lapsing from his apostolic authority and saying stuff that's off the record. That's not, that's not what he's saying here. I think what, he, what he's doing is he's saying that this is sort of like the book of Proverbs. If you read the book of Proverbs, it's proverbial. It's not law, it's not the Torah. And so when you read the book of Proverbs, it's saying this is generally good advice, but it's not the kind of thing that you say there's not one exception to. You know, oftentimes you read the book of Proverbs and say that's generally true, but there's exceptions and that's okay. In the same way, I feel like what Paul is saying here is this is general advice, he is not laying down law. Now he is, at one point he says, now the Lord commands uh, that you do not divorce just for the fact of your husband uh, not being a Christian. Uh, but beyond that, mostly he's saying this is generally good advice. Uh, this is not strict law and rules, uh, but rather this is sort of to be taken as, uh, as proverbial, as generally true. And I think that's often very helpful for us, again, in the book of Proverbs uh, as well. So I'm going to just really make uh, two applications uh, and then I'm going to uh, finish uh, with a, an overall conclusion. So, my two applications of all of this are addressed to just two groups of people, uh, unhappy singles and unhappy marrieds. So that pretty much brackets most of us <laughs> uh, in this room, right? It's like a Venn diagram. Um, uh, well, there's unhappy and there's very unhappy, right? Um, so, I want to tell you, uh, as someone who's been around the church for a long time, uh, in many different contexts, different churches, uh, I'm very aware that there are many single Christians of all ages who deeply desired to be married and to have sex uh, and are unhappy not being married. Uh, and that's just a fact. Um, so I just have uh, three things uh, to apply this passage uh, to your situation, and then we'll turn to talking about married people. Uh, so the first is there's nothing wrong with that desire. You know, in all of this, you know, Paul is saying, if you marry, it is not sin. It's a good thing. Uh, and in general, each person, uh, each man should have his own wife, and each wife uh, her own husband. So it's normal to want to be married. There's nothing wrong with that. And so... I feel like sometimes people think of this, when I talked about the gift of singleness and Paul talks about uh, being gifted, I think sometimes people have in their mind that's like some kind of special gift of holiness of like you never even think about sex. Like it's just like you are in this plane of neutrality and that's how you know you have the gift of singleness. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He says if you're single, that's your gift for right now. 
he's not saying this is like some special calling in life for just a special type of holy people. Uh, and so wherever you may be um, in your you know, desires and so on, uh, it is a gift to be unmarried, not having sex, but there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. So that's really my first statement uh, to singles. On the other hand, I think um, Paul goes out of his way in this passage to say, don't fan the flames and be content with where you are, right? It is a gift uh, to be in a state of being single. Uh, and uh, we'll return to this uh, next week. I'll be talking about the theme in the middle where he talks about being content, uh, which really is a lot of uh, stuff that talks about, some very similar to the book of Ecclesiastes. But... Um, in general, you know, when we think about what God has given us to do, we can talk about callings, and for some of us, for many of us, there's a time of our life, for some of us it may be our whole lives, in which we are called to be single uh, even if we don't like it. Uh, and Paul is saying that's good, but you can make it worse by fanning the flames and whipping yourself up into, I need this, I need this, to the point that it actually becomes idolatry. Uh, where you say, I absolutely need this and everything in my life centers around this one thing. And you can't miss how Paul is saying, fine, it's fine, it's good, but it's just one thing, you know, and don't make your whole life about this. And actually, in many ways, you'd be better off if you're not married. Uh, and so he's reducing the temperature, right? He's saying it's good, but it's not the big thing of all amazing things. Uh, it simply is one good thing, uh, which is great. Uh, and I have to say, this is, a, um, you know, my third point under just addressing singles is, uh, in practice, I have seen over the decades, uh, people make shipwreck of their faith by idolizing marriage and sex. Uh, and oftentimes, it is sometimes, you know, the case that I will hear, oh, somebody walked away from the Lord, and almost like, you know, I say, well, who was the person? You know, what was the relationship uh, that drew them away? Because in very many cases, uh, it comes down to uh, idolization of marriage. <clears throat> um, so how, do, how does this happen? Sometimes people will make shipwreck by pressuring every relationship with the opposite sex to be a rush toward marriage. Somebody who is so fixated on getting married that they smother every relationship of the opposite sex so that they almost scare away the people of the opposite sex. Uh, and that can be very, very destructive. Um, sometimes getting even very close to getting married and then even turning up the pressure more and, and scaring this person. I've seen that in, in several cases. Um, I've seen people fall into relationships with non-Christians. You notice that Paul has a very clear command uh, in verse 39. Uh, he says, you must marry in the Lord, uh, that uh, believers are called to marry uh, other believers in Christ. Um, and again, um, oftentimes we, I would say, uh, use sexual addictions as substitutes for marriage. Uh, and oftentimes those don't go away after you get married. Uh, people fall into patterns. Um, the theme of all these things is what I would say is idolatry, of saying that, you know, going back to the beginning of the sermon, saying this is the most important thing in the world. I must have this by hook or crook, whatever happens, I've got to have this. Uh, and whether for you it's sexuality or it's a new car or it's a great job, if there's anything in your life that say, I must have this, there's no end to the spiritual compromise you will do to get whatever it was. 
Uh, and that's called idolatry in the Bible. When you say that uh, this thing I must have at all costs, uh, even at the expense of my soul, uh, that is idolatry. Um, and yet, the cure for idolatry is not to say this thing is horrible, right? So, uh, you know, if I happen to like fast cars, uh, the way to not idolize cars is to say cars are evil. No one should drive a car. Cars are, are bad. That's not the solution to idolatrizing cars, right? It's just to turn the temperature down and say, yeah, it's a good thing among other good things. It's not the thing in the world. If I don't ever own a car, it won't kill me. Uh, and to lower the temperature. Uh, and so, really, I would say that's, you know, the take-home message for Paul to singles is it's a good thing to be where you are. It's good to want to get married. If that comes a, becomes a possibility, that's great. Uh, but don't sell your soul to get this thing. All right, well, I've kind of talked to the singles. Now I'm going to talk to married people, uh, and married people come under um, other kinds of commands. Uh, so Paul specifically says, uh, if you are married in a situation where your spouse, you find out maybe, is really not a Christian, uh, or maybe they turn on you, uh, and, uh, and you, they were proclaiming to be a Christian, and then they change their mind. Uh, he's saying that's not sufficient reason to get divorced. I think the larger principle here is he's saying, um, don't idolize a happy, perfect marriage, right? The, the, it is not the case that you get to say, I get the perfect spouse or else I walk away from it. Uh, so for those who are married, some people who are married are saying, I'm in a marriage where, you know, um, I'm not really happy. You know, doesn't God want me to be happy? Uh, won't he, you know, reward me if I find a more proper spouse and a better spouse? And a lot of what Paul is saying here is no. Uh, God actually wants you to stay in that semi-unhappy marriage uh, that you're in. And so, uh, you know, Probably everyone who is single here has heard somebody who's married say to them, getting married doesn't solve all your problems, right, married people? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a blessing in many ways, but uh, you take into marriage what you were as a single, and so uh, whatever baggage you had before, you're going to have after, uh, and so uh, if you're idolizing marriage, it's, this is going to solve all my problems, it's probably not going to. Uh, and so the fact is that there are many semi-happy marriages, marriages that are not perfect. And Paul says, you don't just get to walk away and seek the perfect marriage uh, to replace your less than perfect spouse with a more perfect one. And I think in general, we really are a society, as much as we have so much gender confusion in our society, on the other hand, we still have this romantic ideal of like somewhere out there is the one perfect person just for you who will totally make your life perfectly happy. And if you miss that person, your life is misery. And if you find them, then you live happily ever after. I mean, isn't that still very much in the water of our culture as much as people downplay it? It's still very much our thinking. Uh, and, um, you know, Paul is not romanticizing marriage here. He's not saying, if you marry, this makes everything wonderful. You know, he's saying, that's, that's a good thing. You know, frankly, it keeps you in check and it's, you know, it's a good thing for your body, you know, and so on. But if you cannot do it, it's great too. You know, it's just not the holding up and romanticizing a marriage as the solver of all things. And so uh, to the Christian uh, who is married, 
Uh, I would say the, the more general point here is don't idolize the perfect marriage. Uh, live in the marriage you're actually in uh, and, and make what you can uh, good in that. So I'm just going to finish up then with a larger context. Now, in a way, everything I've said could be called a type of law, a type of command of God. Uh, and it's always good in preaching not to end with, well, here's a whole bunch of things to feel guilty about, <laughs> uh, but to end with the understanding of the gospel. So I just want to talk about the larger context. This section of uh, Corinthians uh, is a lot of advice and morality because Paul has been asked a lot of questions. The church is really wrestling with some specific things. But there's a larger context to this, uh, and actually some of it was in chapter 6, and this is in your additional scripture. I'm not going to read this uh, through, but the context, uh, Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And he, re he uh, repeats that exact same phrase in uh, chapter 7 in verse 23, which isn't in front of you. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And so he keeps repeating this phrase, you were bought with a price. And we already heard earlier uh, in the uh, service, Matt saying, Jesus, when he died on the cross, in a very tangible way, bought you. Uh, he bought you uh, body and soul. Uh, and Paul is specifically saying here, he didn't just buy your mind. He bought your body. And he wants to indwell your body with his Holy Spirit. Uh, now, if you just think about that, um, the context here then is saying, the body is a wonderful and holy thing, that you are united to Jesus through faith. Uh, and also from chapter 6, uh, he says, um, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And when he says members, it's not like a membership in a club. He means like a member like an arm, <clears throat> like you are part of Christ. You are united to Christ uh, in this imagery. And he goes on to then say in chapter 6, Therefore, in a very striking picture, he says, if you are engaged in sexual immorality, Jesus is actually there with you in your body while you're doing it. He says that in chapter 6. Okay, that's a really striking image to think about. But he's saying that basically Jesus is so bound body and soul to you that he doesn't leave you when you sin. He's always there body and soul with you. Uh, well, think about how that would change your thinking about this whole area. Uh, in some ways, uh, really what Paul is presenting to us is a whole sea change of how we think about ourselves. It's a weird thing, but people think that those who wallow in sexual sin have a high view of the body, and it's Christians who don't like the body. But actually, if you think about it the other way around, people who are wallowing in sexual sin often implicitly have the attitude, if it doesn't matter what I do with my body, because it's just my body, it's not really me. It's just this thing. Uh, and so they actually have a very low view of the body. And Paul is actually saying, raise up your view of the body. View it as a holy temple of the Lord uh, and treat it uh, as though it is holy. And he actually goes on to even say, uh, you're so holy that if you are married to a non-Christian, you make that person holy by extension. Uh, and your children are holy by extension uh, by virtue of you being having indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
your holiness sort of like rubs off on them uh, in some way. So it's a very different picture. And so I'll just sort of end with this. You know, I know this is a very difficult uh, topic uh, for a lot of us uh, in practice. Um, think about how your attitude toward a lot of things would change if you really were to think in your mind, um, God made my body and he gifted it to me, and it's a gift from God. My body is holy, not an imaginary different body. The body I have is holy, is what Paul is saying, not some new body. Uh, I am united to Christ through the Holy Spirit, all of me. My body is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus uh, likes my body. Um, how would that change how you think about these things? You know, another way to put it is breaking God's rules of sexuality is not because sex is dirty, but precisely the opposite, because it's holy. Uh, because our bodies and our uh, sexuality as part of our bodies is something that God created uh, for us to be holy. Uh, so I'll just finish with one uh, little thing here. Um, the gospel says if we have fallen into sin, whether married or unmarried, you still can be united to Christ. And as I said, it's a striking image in chapter six of saying that Jesus is still united to you even if you're with the prostitute. Uh, and um, there was a movement which I was never part of, uh, like later than my generation, called the purity movement. Some people who are of a certain age, if you grew up in the 90s, there was a movement called the purity movement. And so I can't say whether what I'm saying is correct because it wasn't my movement, it was like after my time. But from what I've heard from some people, the implicit uh, things that were being taught there were if you fall into sexual sin, you've like broken your body forever. Like you've just destroyed it, you've messed it up, and there's no coming back. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches, right? The Bible says that you can be redeemed through Christ, and that no matter what you've done and where you've fallen, uh, you can change, and you can return, and you can live a life of holiness. Uh, and so as we ask Christ into our heart, he comes into us, and that's not just some kind of intellectual exercise. It's saying that he literally inhabits your body, uh, and he wants all of you, your body, soul, mind, strength, and so on, and he will be in all of it. Uh, and so we should use our bodies uh, in such a way, which includes when you're married, having sex, uh, being something that God created for us to uh, enjoy and to treasure and treat as a holy thing within marriage as well. Uh, so let me close this in prayer.